Welcome to the sermon podcast of First Church of Christ, where our goal is to lead generations into a life-changing, ever-growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We pray that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. Good morning, church. I'm not nearly as strong as what people maybe think. That's the uh, end of a journal entry I had, a really raw one, um, in October of 2020. Um, By the way, uh, the week that you prepare the sermon on the stage of depression and grief is really uplifting and encouraging. (laughs) In October of 2020, I had, um, it was on the heels of a counseling session I had with a counselor, and he gave me a, an assessment to, to fill out. And the assessment was designed to diagnose what kind of mental health um, challenge I was facing. It felt like anxiety when I was talking to him about it. Um, I would go through a day, and multiple times during the day, I'd have to remind myself to breathe. And for those of you who breathe on a regular basis, you know, it's not something you want to remind yourself to do. You just hope it just happens, Right. And on top of that, it just, I had a lot of stress being held in my shoulders and, and uh, the, the brain fog was the thing that was the most frustrating. Uh, brain fog doing what I do is kind of problematic. Uh, it helps me to be able to think clearly, um, to not have it. And um, so he gave me this assessment and I filled out the assessment and um, it wasn't anxiety that I was dealing with. Um, on the on the assessment, it, it assessed that I was dealing with depression. And after a little bit of kind of like dealing, like just kind of processing that, it, it kind of made sense because I had been I had had depression before, um, and in that that time, I remember just walking around, just feeling like there was a constant dark cloud above me that. Um, feeling lonely, feeling isolated, and yet also at the same time of feeling isolated and lonely, um, not wanting to be around people. You ever been there? And so I'd constantly, like I'd be around people. I would be around people. I'd, I'd be with people in the church, in the, in the neighborhood. I, I'd, I'd be with people, leadership, staff. I'd be with people. I'd be with my family, and, and yet I wouldn't be there. Um, and the question is like, what, what was I grieving? Well, um, a lot of things, um, back in March of 2020, the month that will live in infamy, a lot changed. And you know, what, what immediately came to mind when I realized that grief was a thing that we were probably all dealing with in the middle of the summer last year is when I kind of occurred to me, um, I realized that I was grieving the loss of uh, all of the work that I felt like we had been doing since I arrived here in late 2018 and all of 2019 and then heading into the first quarter of 2020 and feeling really good about where we were going and what was happening, how God was working and, and, and all of that feeling like the momentum just completely came to a stop. And on top of that, just like thinking about all of the new people that we had had come to the church and be a part of the church 
in those last couple of months and because we had grown and, and, and we had had a lot of people coming and it felt really good to see all the things that were happening and yet for all of that to happen and then to stop immediately and not feel like we were able to get those connections built with a lot of people. I was grieving the loss of those relationships that I felt like I still needed to, to, to build with all of you and, and have those time, that, that attention to be able to do that. And on top of that, I just, I started to, um, in the summer, like, started to realize, like, all of the anger that we were all facing, like, one of the things I was grieving was the thought, was what I thought we were, the, the, the process, the progress that I thought we had been, uh, in, in the American church and us as a church, the spiritual formation that I thought had happened, apparently it seemed in the moment that that was not the case. That is the first sign of things falling apart. We fell apart and we, we, we let go of our hope and we turned to anger and we turned to vitriol and we turned to revenge. We turned to fighting in the face of something that was happening to us that we had no control over. And I saw us as Christians not acting very Christ-like. And, and as a pastor, it pained me because I, 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 I do this so that we would all grow, so that I would grow, so that I could help you, I could invite you to grow in your walk with God. That's what I'm about. Like I, it doesn't matter what the, what, the, what the numbers look like. As long as we are growing in our relationship with Jesus, all those things will work out. And yet it felt like that was maybe just a facade that I started to believe, the progress that I thought we had made. And on top of that, um, you know, I don't know if you know this, but when before I was in ministry, before I was working at a church, um, I thought the, the the ministry staff, the pastors, the elders, I thought I thought things were pretty like good for them. Like I thought they were like pretty happy, and the people in the church were pretty happy for the most part. Um, it's not the case a lot of times. And I've talked to pastors who have been in ministry for decades, some of them longer than I've been alive. And they've said the last 20 months have been the hardest 20 months that they've ever experienced in the ministry. Because the amount, the volume, the amount of people who are angry and frustrated and, 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 and wanting to fight and, and you, they see you on stage all the time, so that's who they want to take it out on. And they feel like if you, you, it's your fault. And they, they take that out on you. And, and it wasn't that I was not used to that. It was just that the volume was so high. It was overwhelming. And I, I, I dealt with anger because I was seeing everyone else angry. And my response to that was anger because I was in the second stage of grief. And it was bargaining. It was trying to control things and trying to figure out what can I do differently so that we're not all facing all this. And then also just, just feeling like a, like a punching bag that, that, and, and I know that this wasn't everyone doing this to me, but it felt like it. And then by the time October rolled around, I was just in the depths of depression and I had no more gas and I felt like I was ready to just give up in this thing. If, if, if what I do, if what we do in the church isn't resulting in any growth in people who are here, then why do I do this? Those were the questions I was asking. And I know that's not what you want to hear from your pastor on stage. But that's where I was. And add to that just past hurts and traumas and felt, feeling like I was having a little PTSD. And in October, I'm just like, I, I don't know what to do. And for some of you who have dealt with depression, you know what that's like. 
In the midst of depression, in the stage of grief, um, it can be easy for us to become unsure of who we are. We don't recognize ourselves. We look in the mirror and what we see is not what we recognize. What is important to us, we don't, we don't know anymore. Because we've dealt with some kind of loss that's flipped our life upside down. And, and we're starting to question what is important, what is what really matters. Because all the things I thought mattered seem to not matter so much anymore when you're confronted with major loss in your life, right? And on top of that, just not really knowing what the future holds. What does this even mean? Starting to try and make sense of all. And, and so in the process of going from shock and denial and, and, and anger, and not to say that we all go through it in this linear fashion, but just go with me here. You got the shock and denial, and you're like, what is going on? And then you get angry because you can't control it, and you go to bargaining because you're trying to control it. You're trying to, trying to work out some scenarios, how you can, you're starting to think, well, maybe if I did this differently in the past, maybe, maybe that person would still be here. Maybe I asked that question in the, in the waiting room, I, it would have changed some things, or maybe if I would have treated them a certain way differently that maybe we would still be together and we we start asking these questions we start fighting and trying striving for control and in the process we start to get exhausted and that's where depression hits and we're just completely spent we don't know what to do we don't know where to go all the fight that was in us seems to be gone Green, or Brent D. Christensen, he, he said this about this stage of grief. He said, loss, grief, disorientation, uncertainties, all elements of life can wear us down. A natural response is for our systems to slow down. This slowing affects our physical strength, our mental and emotional capacities, and our spiritual lives when we feel depressed. Uh, for those of us who don't like to go slow, the slowing process is uncomfortable. Because some of us will, will sleep, and we'll sleep, and we'll sleep because we feel exhausted. And yet we'll wake up and we'll still feel exhausted because it didn't quench the exhaustion. Some of us will have ups and downs and feel good for a little bit, and then we'll go back. And all of a sudden we still feel like this cloud is following us. So aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> Psalm 22 is where we're going to be. We're going to look at what depression is and maybe some responses to it. And maybe, just maybe, one of the most powerful things we can do today is just talk about it. Because too often times in the church we don't talk about it. We don't talk about these things because it makes us uncomfortable. But we're going to talk about it because we need to talk about it because we all go through it. Psalm 22, verse 1. The, the psalmist, King David, this is what he says. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. When we're in depression, um, one of the things that we oftentimes feel 
is we feel lowly and we feel alone. We feel lowly and alone. And for those of us who have been there, it's not a fun thing to feel. Amen. And, and it can, we can start to believe that because we feel this way, God has abandoned us, that God is not interested, that God has left us. Because everything in us says that we are in this by ourselves, that it's up to us to get through it, that God doesn't seem to be giving us any kind of help because that's not what we feel. We don't feel it at all. We don't sense His presence because all we sense is the exhaustion, the mental capacities to just even start to preach to ourselves and make sense of it are gone because we've strived and we've fought and we've tried and yet it's all shown for naught and we are here feeling alone. We, we, we cry and then we try and get some rest and we get no rest. And by the way, y'all... Um, this is just bonus, it's not a point of the sermon. But in the church, especially here in America, especially among men, tears are sometimes necessary. Far more than you let out. Because sometimes tears are the only response appropriate for the things we've been through. It's okay to cry. And sometimes when we hold it in too long, it just makes it harder to get through it. We need to let it out. That's to say the tears are going to fix it, but your body needs it to let it out. Psalm 22, verse 11 says, Don't be far from me because distress is near and there's no one to help. Don't be far from me because distress is near and there's no one to help. Um, I've experienced depression, uh, the experience of it twice in different ways. Like I've been depressed more than three, two, twice, but this is usually how it goes. One of two ways for me. It may be different for you. We all go through grief differently. We all uh, experience these stages differently. So it's not to say that this is the only two ways, okay? But what I've experienced, one of them is like, uh, it's, it's easier for me to describe it like a tsunami. Um, the feeling of distress comes over you and it's, it's of the magnitude that is completely overwhelming, completely debilitating, completely paralyzing, and it seems to just continue on and on and on for days or weeks or months. And it just continues to hit. Every now and then you'll be given a little bit of a glimpse between the dark clouds and you'll see the sunshine through, but for the most part it's just a relentless pressure showering in on you. That's one. The other one that I've experienced is like um, the lowering and the raising of the tides in, in a day, right? So you go through a day and maybe you're fine for the first few hours of the day. And it's fine and you're just, you're okay. You're not maybe great, but you're okay. And then later it'll shift just abruptly and all of a sudden it'll start hitting you 
out of nowhere. And the tears will come. The distress will come. The depression. The feeling of, of isolation. The feeling that no one is there. That you are just in a pit, in a cave, in darkness. And no one is around. And that is all that you feel. And then later... It goes away and you start to feel a little bit better. But every single day you go through this pattern, maybe not every day, maybe every other day, it just comes up and it just is consistent. You have some glimpse of relief and you have some overwhelming moments of despair. And, and what is easy to start to believe is what King David says, don't be far from me because distress is near and there's no one to help. It's easy to believe that because sometimes when we're in that, most times when we're in that, it can feel like we're the only one in that. We're the only one who's ever felt this way. We're the only one who has ever gone through something like this, that they don't know what it's like. So they can't speak into it. They don't know what it's like. There's no one to help. And if they did want to help, you don't even have the strength to let them. The stress is near. Don't be far from me, God. That's the heart cry. And see, the lows, when you have the lows, they'll be quite low. C.S. Lewis, in his book, A Grief Observed, he said this, You tell me she goes on. He's grieving the loss of his wife. You tell me she goes on, but my heart and my body are crying out, Come back! Come back. But I know this is impossible. He's wrestling with bargaining. I know that the thing I want is exactly the thing I can never get. The old life, the jokes, the drinks, the arguments, the lovemaking, the tiny, heartbreaking, commonplace, on any view whatever, to say she is dead is to say all that is gone. It is a part of the past, and the past is the past, and that is what time means. And time itself is one more name for death. And heaven itself is a state where the former things have passed away. The stress is always near because you are reminded of the memories that will no longer be able to be repeated. Reminded of the future that you thought you could have that will not be the future that you will actually have. And again, this is not just the loss of a loved one. This is the loss of anything that was major in your life. Loss of a relationship. You start to question, could I have done something differently? And then you realize that it, it wouldn't matter anyway because you can't go into the past. There is no DeLorean that will go that fast that will get you back. You can't go back to the past and change it. And so you're just sit, sitting there stuck in the reality of what is. And it's, you're not ready. You don't have the strength to move forward in that. You just have an overwhelming sense of the reality of what is. It could be the loss of a job. It could be the loss of a relationship. It could be the loss of something significant in your life. It could be the loss of anything. So when you're in depression, um, progress can look sometimes underwhelming. Um, when, you're, when you're stuck, sometimes feeling okay, feeling good, 
for five minutes, that's progress. Now, some of us, when we're in this, um, we need to give ourselves more grace. Don't expect yourself to be yourself when you're in this. And also, when you see someone else going through it, don't expect them to be themselves when they're going through it. So maybe progress is, is being okay for five minutes. Maybe after that, it's being okay for ten minutes. And that's progress. And after that, maybe it's, pro, it's 30 minutes. You, you feel okay. Like you can, move, you can move and do the things you need to do. And maybe after that, it's an hour of you being okay. After that, maybe it's an afternoon of you feeling okay. After that, maybe it's a whole day. A whole day of being okay. And soon after that, at some point, you'll get to a point where you realize this whole week you were okay. And then the thought comes in your head that you shouldn't be okay that long. And you start showering guilt upon yourself for being okay. And you go back down. Progress in depression is slow and it will likely last longer than any of us would like. None of us would sign anyone else up for this. We don't want to be in it. And yet, here we are, if you're in it. And so you might last longer. It might last longer than you would like. And you can fight and you can work and you can do the work to get through it. But that doesn't change the fact that you're in it. So one of the things that we can easily easily believe, and this is certainly true for me, um, is... uh, Loss sometimes has to do with people and and pain and all of that. And so um, when I'm feeling it, I I don't want to be around people. Because there's not a lot of people I trust enough to open up with that. And so I'm holding it in all the time. Maybe you're like that too. And some of us can believe that the, the best response is to forsake the gathering. And I don't just mean the church service. I mean gathering with people. The gathering. We are better together. And yet I say that all the time. And yet I, half the time, don't believe it to be true for myself. Is it okay if I get honest? Because people will cause pain. And sometimes it's hard to go through feeling of lowness. When you're not sure who you can share that with. Don't forsake the gathering though. In the midst of it. It's worth it to let others in. Even when it's hard. He goes on in verse 14. He says this. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth you put me into the dust of death you notice how much he's talking about his physical being in that i'm poured out like water and all my bones are disjointed my heart is like wax melting within me my strength is dried up like baked clay 
My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. David is is pointing out something that's so true that we need to keep in mind is that we, and I've said this multiple times, is that we are human beings who have emotions, we have a physical body, we have a mind, we have a heart, we have all these things, and it's all connected. So if you're going through grief, and you don't know it, if you're going through grief and you're trying to stuff it, if you're going through grief and you're not trying to recognize where you are and be honest with how you feel, then your body will keep count. And eventually that will show up in physical ways that will not be good for you. Granger E. Westbrook, he's author of Good Grief, he uses this as an illustration to just kind of give an example of what this might be like. For someone in grief and how that is connected to the body. He, he tells the story of Mr. and Mrs. Brown. They live in a small town in Iowa. Um, and in the small town in Iowa, Mr. Brown, he has a decent job. He has a decent house. They, they have a decent property. They are happy with what they have in the small town. They both grew up there. They've got a lot of uh, connections and friends and family and nieces and nephews. They've, they weren't able to have kids, but they had their nieces and nephews over at their house Every single day, Mr. Brown was able to come home at lunchtime and spend that hour with his wife and they would spend time in the garden. They, they had a good full life. And all of a sudden, one day, um, his Mr. Brown's boss was scheduled to go to a convention in Chicago, but he couldn't go. And so he asked Mr. Brown to go in his place. And so Mr. Brown agreed to go to Chicago. Why not? And so he goes to Chicago, he goes to this convention, and there at the convention he meets uh, one of uh, some powerful person at another company, and this person saw Mr. Brown's skill set and saw him uh, as someone he wanted on his team, so he offered Mr. Brown a job. And the key thing with this job is it would pay him three times the amount that he was paid in Iowa. Three times. And as, as someone who's in America, we have a value on, hey, if someone's going to offer you more, you go, right? We celebrate that. That is a chief uh, decision-making metric in the decision-making metrics of your life, right? You, if you, someone offers you three times the salary, of course that's from God. Amen. He's showering blessings on you, right? And so they decide, yes, let's go do that. Mr. Brown says yes. Mr. and Mrs. Brown, they have some gatherings at their house with their friends and their family, and everyone's celebrating them. Everyone's excited about their their new opportunity that they're going to go and do in Chicago. And so they move, and they move into this nice, immaculate apartment downtown Chicago. And, And Mr. Brown is excited. Mrs. Brown is excited, but she's a little nervous. She's not. She she stays at home, and and so Mr. Brown he he has more hours he's putting in. He, he did, he then finds out that he's got to travel for work. And so he's going to be gone Tuesday through Thursday. And so Mrs. Brown, she's not going to be able to see her husband during lunch every day, let alone see him every day. And so all of these changes are starting to pile up. And Mrs. Brown has no one, no friends. She's, she's kind of a person who keeps to herself. She's an introvert. She doesn't like going out and putting herself out there. And so she is trying to wrestle with this new place. And Mr. Brown, every time he gets home, he's excited about how much money he's making. And Mrs. Brown starts to get resentment. 
starts to get bitter about this move because she feels like their, their, their life back in Iowa is way better than what they are experiencing here and now. And after a while of holding this in, because she's not voicing it to him or to anyone else, she starts to experience some, some uh, body aches, some headaches, some back aches, and she's, she's just feeling terrible. And so she does tell him about that, Mr. Brown. And as they're talking, they both agree that she needs to go see the doctor. And so she goes to the doctor, and the doctor says, Whoop, there it is. That's, that's totally mixed up. <laughs> Uh, that was that was random. Um, it's a very serious sermon. I gotta give you some kind of laughter. Okay, so she goes to the doctor and they see what she's got. You know the symptoms, and and so they prescribe her some medicine. She goes home. She takes the medicine. A couple weeks, feeling better. After those couple weeks, she starts feeling those thing, same things again. The medicine isn't working, and, and she's just frustrated about it, so she goes back to the doctor. They do more tests. They run more things, and they try to figure out what's going on with Mrs. Brown. And what they find is that physically, she seems fine. And so the doctor has a hunch that maybe the, the source of this illness that she's experiencing has to do with some kind of relational, social thing. And so she he talks to... <clears throat> talks to a chaplain. Chaplain goes and talks to Mrs. Brown, asks her, hey, you know, tries to get to know her, and they have the, you know, regular small talk and, and all that, and she feels comfortable sharing with him, and so she opens up a little bit that it's been really hard since they moved to Chicago, and, and she's really growing as she continues to kind of share and be more open. It turns out that she completely hates his job and would love for the company to fold and then go back to Iowa because her her whole life has completely changed and been flipped upside down and she's just done. She just hates it. And the chaplain rightly recognizes that she's grieving and she's not reached out to anyone about this. She's not voiced her her feelings other than internalizing them, holding them in. And so that was keeping score. Her body was keeping score and causing her to feel terrible. And so, in light of that, um, after that, that story, Granger says this, Every man and every woman, in order to live a rich and meaningful life, must take a turn at being a philosopher to search for meaning in living. One of the gifts of grief is that we are afforded an opportunity to re-look at what we deem as important. For them, they thought the most important thing is to make more money and to be able to have more things and to be able to do more stuff, have more options. And what they found is that that alone is not going to satisfy them at all. And so one of the gifts of grief is that When we have enough strength, we get the opportunity, if we take it, to have a turn, as he said, at being a philosopher, to search for meaning in living. Because if we focus on the wrong things, then we will continue to be let down. But in grief, we get to see what's most important. We get to start to recognize what hurts the most when we lose it. And we have an opportunity to reorient our life around those things that are most important. So what can we do in response to our depression? I'll give you three things. For those of you who take notes, this is your moment. 
The first thing, and none of these are foolproof, you know, but they'll help, I think. Number one is, I've said this multiple times, be honest with how you feel. Be honest with how you feel. And, and I'll add this. Don't only experience your emotions. Don't let your emotions run the show. Don't just experience them, but, but spend time examining them. Start questioning your emotions. Start questioning your feelings. Why do you feel this way? Why am I, why am I wrestling with this? What does this say? Don't just, don't just be honest with how you feel, but start to examine what you feel. The second thing is to remind yourself of his faithfulness. Remind yourself of his faithfulness. I, I skipped over this. Psalm 22, verses 3 through 5. This is what King David said right after he said, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. And then he says this in verse 3. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. Sometimes when we are in the moment where we have no hope, where we recognize that right now it does not feel like God is here. It does not feel like God cares. It does not feel like God is doing anything to work out this thing for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Because I love him and I feel called according to his purposes, but I don't feel, I don't see all the good that's working out. When we feel that way, we need to remind ourselves of the faithfulness of God in the past. Because right now, in this moment, we don't feel it, but we know that he's been faithful in the past, that we're still here, that he's still working, and we can remind ourselves that even when we feel low and lonely, he's right there with us, picking us up, taking us beside still waters, taking us to green pastures, and walking with us through the valley of the shadow of death. That we can remind ourselves of that. But I recognize that that is hard to do when you feel the way you do. But it must be something you fight for. Number three, take care of yourself. Take care of yourself even when yourself seems like a stranger. I don't know about you, but when I feel low and when I feel and, and realize that I have a very finite amount of strength, a very finite amount of strength in myself. It's easy for me to feel really, really angry with myself because I ought to be stronger than this. I've been through this before. God saw me through it. Why are you feeling this way, Brandon? And some of us have been there too. And when we don't feel like ourselves, when we look at ourselves in the mirror and we don't recognize who we see, then we are more inclined to let ourselves go. So one of the things that my counselor reminded me to do, and these were so simple but so important, is, hey, Brandon, you should at least get back to a place where you're, you're exercising, you're eating right, you are spending time with people. You're doing things that bring you joy. It's okay to be happy. It's okay to go and do things that bring you joy. Get back 
Get back in, in prayer in a deeper way. Take care of yourself. Take care of yourself. Even when yourself seems like a stranger. I want you to hold on to this. Grief is often accompanied by feeling lowly and lonely. In the midst of it, let God and others in. In the midst of it, let God and others in. And that's the first step to taking care of yourself. And I get it. I get all of the objections to that. Because everything in you says, I don't want to. I don't want to. I want to just be by myself. I want to be in this space, in this mess, because this is what I know. This is what I can count on. This is where I am. And you've got past stories that you've believed about the past that maybe are in your present that tell you, you know what, don't let others in. That won't work out for you. Don't let God in. Where's that gotten you to this point? Here you are. But again, grief is often accompanied by feeling lowly and lonely and you don't have to shower shame upon yourself when you feel that way. But in the process, in the midst of it, let God and others in. In bargaining, we're asking God, we're trying to plead with Him for control. We're trying to figure out what we could have done different, how we could have acted differently, what, what kind of question we could have asked in the waiting room, what kind of, what kind of thing could we have done to save uh, that marriage, what kind of thing could we have done to save that friendship, what kind of thing could we have done differently to save that job, what kind of, what kind of thing could we have done differently to save the house, to save us from the suffering, what kind of thing could we have done? I'm trying to figure it out so I don't make the same mistake and then we get to the point where we need to ask God for his help when we're in bargaining we ask him for his help in depression we're already at a point of, of surrender we're just surrendering to the depression right we're just feeling we just we have nothing else to give that's surrender we, we realize we got nothing else to give and we just go down into the depths and I think it's an opportunity for us To let God help us in that. We ask him for help in bargaining and we let him help us when we're in depression. See, I have a a weird relationship with grief, especially this stage. I have a weird relationship with it. Because I've been through it in, in a way where it was in that season of, of no hope, of no, no picture of the future, no ability to see what was coming, not any realization of who I really am because all that was lost because of what I lost. And it was in that process of deep, dark depression where God showed up. Where God took me by my arms and said, you are worth it. You are loved. You are adored. You are cared for. I am your father. And if you surrender to me, you can come home. And I will never leave you or forsake you. I know you're weary and heavy burdened and you've got nothing else to give. Come to Jesus 
and he will give you rest. So I know that there can be good come from that comes from this. There can be good that comes from this, that God can do a mighty work in you. That sometimes he allows us to go through the valley of the shadow of death so that he can show off to you when he prepares a table in the presence of your enemies. In the presence of the enemy who has spouted lies against you, spouted lies at you, and has tried to take you out. And he says, hey, come on, pull up to the table. Let's have a meal together. And they can sit there and watch. The enemy can sit there and watch because you are mine. And I love you. And I'm the one who's going to protect you moving forward. See, Jesus quoted Psalm 22, verse 1, when he was on the cross. Some of you may recognize that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A lot of commentators have a lot of debates on what he meant when he said that. Did God actually forsake him? Did God turn away from him? I think you should read the rest of Psalm 22 this week. Especially after verses 14 and 15 that we read earlier. And see how it ends. But, but we can't escape the truth that Jesus went to the cross and was endured wrath for our sins so that we could be given life. So that we could be given reconciliation with our Father whom we were enemies to. And he called out to the Father. And he said to the people, about the people who were nailing him to the cross, who were, who were jeering him, who were making fun of him, who were spitting on him, as he's, as he's hanging on a cross naked, forgive them, Father. For they know not what they do. And he says the same thing about us. See, because of Jesus, we get to enjoy the declaration of Isaiah 43.1, not just for Israel, but for us too. This is what it says. Now this is what the Lord says, the one who created you, Jacob, and the one who formed you, Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. That was a declaration to Israel, to God's people. But through Jesus, we are grafted in to the family of God, to the people of God. That now Israel is counted as the church. And so that's what this is says. It says, now this is what the Lord says. The one who created you, Jacob. The one who, create, who formed you, Israel. The one who formed you, insert your name. Do not fear. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You. 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 Are mine. You are mine. So in response to all this, what can we do? We can surrender to Jesus when we are feeling low and lowly and lonely. And I promise you, just continue to surrender to him and he'll see you through it. In the midst of grief, it's, it's regular, it's common to feel low and lowly, but in the midst of it, let God and others in. It's worth it. Church, would you stand? We're going to pray and sing.
Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to have this conversation, to see your word proclaimed that this is nothing new to you, that we don't surprise you, that this broken world can, can beat us down. We can beat each other down. We can, we can experience loss of people we love so dearly, of things we've given our life for. And it can feel like we are alone in it. But God, please remind us that you are with us, that you know what it's like to lose something. But God, we're so grateful that you're also the one who decided to go and find us when we were the lost sheep wandering without direction, without hope, that we were trying to survive out on our own, that you pursued us, put us on your shoulders, and carried us home. God, some of us are feeling too weak to even walk, too weak to even get through the next moment. God, we need you to show up. We need you to remind us of your love. We need you to remind us of your grace, your power. God, please heal our hearts, heal our broken hearts. Help us to trust you. We love you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast by First Church of Christ in Bluffton, Indiana. For more information, visit FCCFamily.com.